All right, hello, welcome to the Cosmic Eye Show. I'm Jason Napolitano, and on the line, Mr. Chris Sheridan is here. How you doing, Chris? Very dark. It's, uh, well, it's dark out, it's nighttime, but it's also coming upon the winter solstice where it's the shortest day and thus the longest night of the year. So by dark, I guess I just mean physical darkness. It's, uh, it's dark out. It is, it is. It's dark out, isn't that a song? No, that's... I don't know, but it's, it should be these days. But every year, this is where we find ourselves around the Hanukkah, Christmas, New Year area. Yeah. And uh, yeah, short days, long nights, but um, the sun returns. The sun returns well, indeed. At the solstice, after it stops. Absolutely. It's back, so. Great, uh, great uh, uh, segue into, into what we're talking about today on the Cosmic Eye Show, which is the death of myth and the resurrection of meaning. The resurrection of meaning. So uh, we're going to get into that in a moment. I want to thank you for uh, joining us here each Sunday and on Friday for our Emmett Fox show as well, Emmett Fox Friday show. Uh, we are at anchor.fm slash cosmic eye if you'd like to make a donation. Chris's book is The Spirit in the Sky. Mine is If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate. Both of those are available on Amazon. So if you can, please support us by buying our books. Uh, making donations to the podcast as well. You know, we're we're trying to keep this thing moving forward and, and any help we can get, we'd really appreciate it. And also please uh, share with your friends on social media if you can, so we can get the, get the word out. You know, we're trying to share positive information, ancient wisdom, psychology, esoteric wisdom, and so on through the show. And if you're listening to us, I mean, you know, we're not preaching to the converted. You are uh, uh, you know, you realize the value of this material. And so please help us get it out there to more people. You know, it's, it's one of these things where we can create that sort of paradigm shift. The more people that know and practice and understand this information in their lives, the more that we can create that, uh, that better world that we're all, we're all moving towards, right? That, that resurrection of meaning, as it were, that resurrection of, of, of myth and value and so on that we're, that we're seeking. Uh, so we can find find our ways in life. All right, so let us jump into the death of myth and the resurrection of meaning. Thank you, Chris, for that beautiful title, by the way. Um, all right, so what does this mean? The death of myth, the resurrection of meaning. So the death of myth is this idea. It's it's pretty pervasive these days. You can hear you know you hear a lot about it in uh, a lot of the modern teachings, particularly in the Jungian circles, uh, but even the Freudians speak about this. Uh, so the idea that there is a, a, a myth that we're contained in, our culture is contained in, and that, you know, provides meaning for us. For most people, for, you know, throughout the, uh, up to at least the, nearly the end of the 19th century, um, most people were contained in the Judeo-Christian myth. And I don't mean myth in the sense that it's untrue. I mean myth in the sense of mythos or worldview. Um, and for the West, that also included the, the Greek mythological viewpoint as well, which is certainly uh, inter, intermixed with the Judeo-Christian philosophy. And most people found, them firmly found themselves firmly ensconced and uh, cocooned within that worldview. And it was, you know, you, you found your meaning in life. Uh, you know, from that, it, it provided you a sort of sense of understanding and guidance. Again, it doesn't mean that everyone believes that and everyone agrees with every single dogma and tenet of all those particular branches of, you know, of Judaism and Christianity. But it means 
that mainly most people are are at least contained with and understand the myth that that those that those um, worldviews represent. Uh, in other words, there's an ethical and a philosophical theological structure that that you live in that provides an overall meaning for your life. Okay, so this this worldview. Uh, served us in a, in a great way for a long time. It structured our, our legal systems, it structured our economic system, it structured our school, you know, our school and, and, and educational systems. Um, you know, it structured our family and social systems, you know, people were married in churches or synagogues. Um, you know, the, the, the laws of the, of the church and synagogue were, you know, were, were paramount in most people's lives, at least, um, you know, up until, you know, uh, let's say the, you know, the late 1700s, early 1800s, and in this country, really up until the 1900s, the church held sway until probably the, even the 1950s here, where, you know, the U.S. is a very religious country, and, you know, Europe was, was far more secular and has been far more secular for far longer than we have. Um, you know, and even today, there's a good amount of, of people who still consider them, you know, themselves observant Christians and Jews in this country, as well as other faiths. Um, but the idea here then is that, you know, there was an overriding mythological understanding of how the world worked, and that gave people meaning in their lives. And that is something that famously was described by, you know, once that ended, that was famously described by, by Nietzsche as, as he went in as saying, God is dead. And he by, by no means felt that that was a good thing. And he predicted, uh, you know, the, 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 the terrors of, you know, World War II and, and all of these different movements and the, you know, the Soviet revolution and all of these different things in much of his work. He was a, a genius, even though he was a very troubled man. Um, so he saw that that, that move uh, into this modern viewpoint, what you call the modern viewpoint, now we've moved into a, a different, more abstracted viewpoint, which is a postmodern view. The modern viewpoint is this more or less the scientific objective worldview, where we do not see any meaning attached to things. We just see objects out there to be, to be studied. Uh, you know, through scientific methodology, and, and most people don't necessarily have a narrative of meaning uh, in their lives any longer. And the idea then that this death of myth, uh, it, it, you know, and the death of God that Nietzsche spoke of is this, is this sort of spiritual vacuum that, you know, the modern world finds itself in. Uh, so we're going to talk about that and how we can resurrect some meaning in our own life and you know, some of the problems with, uh, with not having a myth and not being contained in some sort of mythological worldview. And again, you know, this idea of myth, it doesn't mean it's a falsity. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a worldview, it's, you know, a spiritual construct, um, a tale that is, you know, truer than true. Uh, so that's how we're looking at myth. It's not a disparaging way that we're saying this word, that I'm saying this word. I don't know. You have, you have a good definition of myth as well, right? Well, I do. It's, I can't attribute it because I don't remember, but uh, a myth is a story that never was, but always is. That's great. Yeah. Never was, but always is. So, yeah, it may not actually be true. Maybe there wasn't a little boy who actually cried wolf when there wasn't a wolf. 
until people didn't believe him any longer. And then he got eaten up when he yelled wolf when there really was a wolf and no one bought it. Uh, that may or may not have really happened and it really doesn't matter. Um, but raising a false alarm and the consequences of that, um, that always is. That is something that guides our life. That's why we have these, you know, teeny myths with their little, you know, nursery uh, tales. Uh, they tell us something about ourselves, who we are, and how to live in this world, whether it's the world of nature uh, or the world of relationships with you know, family and, and other people we come in contact with. And, uh, and it's so important because, it, you know, some people even think that myths are stored in the body, that, it, that we are just myth creatures. Uh, and I'll kind of take a quick side <laughs> bar, if I will, and talk about uh, like conspiracy theories. Uh, a lot of the um, the reasoning behind uh, having a, a you know far out explanation for something is because it was lacking explanation. The story didn't add up. So then maybe somebody else can say, "Well, maybe it's because Earth is flat, or you know, JFK killed." Um, you know, the, the Greenpeace dealer. I don't know what happened, but, you know, it, it's, it sounds outlandish and they sound very kooky, but they are attempts at finishing the story or somehow making sense of this narrative, this myth that isn't holding up. There's something empty. And I think we'll, you know, we'll go along and um, kind of describe how, how some of these strong myths have um, been really diluted uh, with the scientific uh, worldview and industrial revolution, uh, very important growth that we have to go through. And I'm, uh, I'm on board with science and everything, uh, but some things happen along the way. And uh, I think we're a little, mm, yeah. not, not any better for the, the cause. Well, it's an interesting thing because uh, we'll, we'll look at a, an interesting example of where, you know, an ex a, a very, uh, deep, sort of uh, deeply entrenched uh, experiment, let's say, or a very heavy-handed experiment of, of of actually, you know, an intensified idea of of actually killing off religion, you know, occurred in the Soviet Union, um, you know, under under the totalitarian totalitarian communism that existed in the Soviet Union, and what actually happened there was a very was a was a mythologizing of the state and then these leaders you know deified you know the 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 gigantic you know statues of lenin and and marx and stalin that went up and you know and the ritualistic marches and the uniforms and the new and the and this whole new system of propaganda symbology that was created which is really pretty interesting and remarkable when you look back on it. And actually there's a highly collectible market of, of Soviet propaganda now. You know, there's a whole, there's a whole groups of collectors that, you know, the posters and all of the stuff now because they don't do that any longer. It's a, it's a relic of a bygone era. But they, they basically turned socialism or communism into a religion. The very thing that they rejected, you know, they made religion illegal essentially, and then turned politics into a quasi-religious sort of system. 
you know, where the state is all powerful and these leaders are deified and, you know, there's a whole system of, you know, creeds that you've got to believe and everyone knew they were lies, but they would say them to themselves over and over again and try to talk themselves into these, you know, certain beliefs and so on. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting because, you know, like you said, I mean, we're myth, we're, we're, we're bound in story narrative and mythology as, as human beings. And I mean, our, our, our neuro, biology is is intertwined with with storytelling and and myth making that we seem to be wired for story we're wired for myth we're wired for folklore you know it's the way that we most effectively learn through these metaphors and analogies and so on and and these spiritual symbols and you know mythological contents of of these different you know tales and and ritual uh, enactments of things and so on. It's literally how we're wired. Um, you know, so to try to get rid of that or to not have a structure of meaning for our, for, for, for our lives is, is, is very difficult. And this is some of the work that, that Jung took very seriously as well as a, as a student of Nietzsche's. Um, you know, Jung was very fond of, of his work. And um, not a student, direct student of him, but a student in the sense that he studied his work very seriously. Um, and so, you know, he was very interested in in understanding how we could we could we could work on creating individual uh, myths for ourselves to live by, uh, and sort of I don't want to say construct, but sort of find our correct path for ourselves that may be outside of any sort of uh, orthodox religious group. And it, it really is probably, you know, the only solution that, that some people are going to find today. And, you know, you would say, look, if you're, if you're contained within a particular religious tradition or cultural tradition that works for you and gives you meaning, you know, stick with it. Um, you know, you know, grow beyond it psychologically if you need to, but but there's no reason to jettison that. And he was even in favor of, you know, people who had moved away from their their you know their their own religious traditions to actually kind of reinvestigate it in a new way. And you know, his his father, Jung's father, was a pastor. I believe he's a Calvinist pastor, if I'm not mistaken. And um, you know, so he grew up in in that very restricted sort of worldview and so on uh, that, you know, that, that kind of shaped Swiss culture at the time and so on um, and had to develop his own his own way. You know, and now we kind of find ourselves in an opposite situation where most people don't grow up with religion or with any sort of mythological constraints around them or teachings so that we're just adrift. And that's where we talk about this death of myth. You know, it's not that these things don't exist. Obviously, religions exist, and obviously, mythology exists, and, you know, people are very active in New Age things and so on. It's just that, you know, we don't have any uh, overall cultural structure that holds us all together. So now we're all busy trying to create our own individual meanings about life, and that's the kind of struggle. And then how do we match that with a sort of uh, cultural cohesive understanding that can keep us all on the same page because that's where you know what what it means to be contained within the myth is that we're all kind of on board with the you know same sort of philosophical and ethical ideas and we can create laws around that and most people 
buy into that and it keeps society structured and stable. Without that kind of mythology, how do we construct a stable, ethical, you know, well-functioning society is really what Jung was concerned with and what anyone who's looking at this idea of the death of myth is concerned with, myself and, and you included, right, Chris? Well, right, and that implies that, um, you know, if without this myth, we don't have the guidance, it implies that the myth is the guidance. It is this guiding principle, the guiding story, the guiding uh, set of instructions uh, through rites of passage. Uh, and this is ancient. This goes way back. Myths were very, very close, very personally, uh, whether it's the government of the, the tribal council um, or the family structure or the clan, uh, deeply involved in ritual, deeply involved with these myths because they told a story. One of the first stories they ever told was the story of the sun, the sun rising, the sun setting, the seasons. I mentioned earlier about the solstice, where the sun appears to stop and then it starts warming up again. Uh, it was because we live so close to the earth and nature and these forces, uh, like when springtime came around in a lot of areas, it was a big deal. Uh, now it's like, well, okay, I can just turn my heater down and later on I'll turn the air conditioner up it's kind of an inconvenience. It's not ruling your life. Like yeah. you said. So nature was a common myth and everybody was on board with it all over the world for centuries, for millennia, uh, because that was part of everybody's everyday life, uh, this astrotheological notion. But I think what happened is with, you know, talking about uh, governments like, uh, you know, communism, um, having to destroy some of these myths, but in doing so ended up kind of creating their own uh, because you can't avoid it. Same thing with religion. Religion, you know, especially in the last 2000 years, um, had a tendency to cut off the more mythic, the more meaningful aspects of say pagan or indigenous cultures. Uh, so in a way religion, especially, you know, with the new Christianity and, um, you know, the uh, 300s uh, of, of this uh, uh, current era going forward kind of took the meat, kind of took the meaning out of it. So then you have empty rituals and then you have dogma and then you have power structures. Well, even science came along and said, well, you know, religion is superstitious. You believe in some sky God that you can't even see. This is absurd. Well, let me tell you about gravity. <laughs> you know, and then here's just some other force that you can't see, or the weak atomic nuclear force or something that you can't really seem to avoid it, no matter how much you try to destroy it. Uh, and now science has become, well, you just don't believe in science. If somebody challenges your opinion on something, and it's, that's what a religion uh, in power would have said 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. You just don't believe in, you know. Yeah or something and then so I'll, I'll you know I'll burn you at the stake there you go how do you like that um, you know we kind of skewer people now if they don't believe in science um, but it's it's not something you really need to believe in um, it's but it you know it, look at the missions to you know from JPL and NASA and things like that it's you know the Apollo it's Mercury it's Artemis you know the Atlas rocket you know, they're, they're all named after mythological figures and heroes in the constellations. So 
you can't get away from it no matter how you try. It still comes up again because that's who we are. That's yeah. really who we are. And I think this, uh, I want to talk, you know, I'll put it over to you. Uh, maybe we can talk about, you know, why this death? Why was it killed off in the first place? And uh, in some ways, there's a good reason. If myth gets too crystallized or too superstitious or holding somebody back, uh, then you can't advance in some other areas. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think, you know, as, as uh, um, you know, many people have pointed out, uh, Edward Edinger being one of them, Edinger was a, was a Jungian in Los Angeles, um, and he has a lot of great talks on, uh, on YouTube that you can check out. But he spoke about the idea of, you know, these, these people that were involved in sort of bringing this about. I mean, you think about like, you know, da Vinci and Galileo and, you know, the Renaissance artists and the early scientists and so on. And, you know, much of this, much of this, the seeds that were, you know, that's, that kind of eventually grew into this death of myth, let's call it, um, you know, were sown by individuals who were actually, you know, pious individuals who themselves were, uh, you know, if they weren't really necessarily, you know, church going folks, they, they, you know, they were spiritual people. They believed that they were doing something that was enlightening individuals and furthering knowledge and wisdom and so on by um, investigating these new scientific ideas and, you know, developing a, a new world. And the, the ironic thing is that, for example, one of the people that gets often blamed for, you know, this sort of split between mind and body and this split between, um, you know, spirit and matter and this idea that, you know, this scientific objective theory is Descartes, you know. Um, and the crazy thing about Descartes that most people don't know is that an angel came to him in a dream and told him to start spreading this idea of objective science. People do not realize that all these people that talk about objective objective science and you know the truth and we have to believe in science, the the the, the endeavor was 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 created by a vision of an angel. That I find fascinating. Um, but so these people thought that they they were you know they were moving in in a direction and they were you know many many good things came out of the scientific revolution, many great, great inventions and much suffering was relieved because of it. And certainly much uh, superstitious, dogmatic, you know, persecuting type behavior was, was mitigated. You know, we've, we were, we're, you know, we're moving towards a much more, more tolerant society and so on and, and all of that. And much of that is, you know, is, is because of this movement towards this more objective scientific quote unquote worldview. But um, you know, but what we've lost along the way is that, that, that containment of, you know, that the myth provided before that gave us meaning and structure in our lives. Um, you know, and in a sense, by moving towards this more objective scientific worldview, you know, we killed off all of the mystery and meaning in things. And now, you know, if this is why science is a, is a beautiful tool to use, and it's a wonderful thing but it is not a philosophical outlook that is going to give you any kind of satisfaction in life because it's not even trying 
to investigate questions of meaning. Meaning has nothing to do with the objective scientific worldview, but meaning has a great deal to do with human life. And that's what we forget. Like science is great for looking at things, you know, in a somewhat objective way, um, you know, to isolate certain things and figure things out and, you know, have these reproducible um, experiments and so on. But it has nothing to do with the soul. In fact, it would, it would postulate that there isn't a soul because they can't measure it, weigh it, and see it. Uh, you know, and we, you know, we know that there's something which exists in us that is, that is a spirit or a soul. You know, we can feel that. We sense it. Something leaves the body. You know? We, we, we can, we, it's a sort of a priori idea, idea that you know, most of us hold. Most, most people in science probably believe that as well. It's something that human beings just seem to, 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 to sense about themselves. There's a, there's a spiritual part and a physical part. And at death, the, the spiritual part uh, goes somewhere else. You know what I mean? And, 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 and this thing is that, you know, the, the, the challenge is, is that, you know, this, this worldview that we've adopted after this death of myth is, is, is basically kind of this conglomeration of, of consumerism, uh, you know, pop, pop psychology and, you know, these democratic ideals that we hold so dear and which are great but they're, they're not a mythological worldview, you know, they're a political system. Um, and then, you know, some consumerism thrown in for good measure. And, and there's no meaning in any of those things. I mean, there's no inherent meaning in them. You know, whereas, whereas mythology is teaching you how you should live. It's the, you know, it's a question of how should we be? You know, philosophy talks about how you should act. You know, science and, and, and sociology tell, and, and, even psychology for the most part today is telling us how we do act or what is going on or where these problems are, what these social structures do, but it's not, it's not providing any kind of um, guide to what, again, what we should be doing. And that's where that lack of meaning is. And that's why we talk, we're talking about in our title, we have this, the, in, you know, the death of myth and the resurrection of meaning because without meaning, what is life for? You know what I mean? I do. And it's this you know, notion that the myth contained within the myth is meaning, or better yet, the mythological framework is the pathway through which you can discover meaning. You know, the myth yeah. doesn't necessarily give you um, the meaning, but it's, it's the path of discovery of meaning. It's the journey you take uh, mm. to find yeah. that, especially any kind of inner meaning, which, um, you know, is incredibly important, uh, vital to, uh, you know, to our larger self. And you, you mentioned like, you know, the, uh, the you know, the, uh, psychology and where that's come from. It was originally called the science of the soul. Yeah, exactly. Eology, you know, um, that's kind of its name, but it, it really doesn't do it. You're talking about behaviors, which are things already done, not what causes the behaviors. Yeah. Or what's behind the thought that caused you to do this thing. What's the feeling, um, you know, involved? Or what's your soul's longing that, you know, you may not even know, or your shadow elements, all these things. That's why depth psychology, I think, is really 
uh, a strong attempt, and I think very largely successful, in bringing back some of these things because it has been lost. Well, religion killed it off because you know it that became the power structure, and then science sort of killed what was left off because of you know all the superstition, and um, and they're all great. They're all great ways to look at it. But uh, one person we study a lot, Manly P. Hall, uh, suggests that philosophy is um, sort of the framework or the bridge uh, that'll get us back by moving forward, not going back, but it'll help reintegrate, resurrect some of these meaningful things because it does ask those questions, should we be doing this? Science says, uh, well, okay, or asks, how do we split the atom? Oh, well, here's how we do it. Uh, well, how do we make a bomb? Well, here's a bomb. Okay, well, how do we drop it? Well, put it on this plane, there you go. It didn't really ask, should we build this bomb or drop it? Those are in the realm of philosophy and also any other kind of moral code, you know, religions yeah. and things like that, you know, uh, do that. It asks you, well, why? Why a bomb? Why this bomb? Uh, yeah. Should we drop it? Should we drop more? Uh, I don't know. Um, but science really doesn't care. And there's a real gift with science, especially when you're talking about things of the soul and psychology. I think using that scientific framework can uh, really help solve some of, of our uh, mysterious psychological riddles if applied properly. Mm. You know, I because scientifically, if you if you're able to step back and, and look at yourself, <laughs> let's say it's easier to look at somebody else, especially a friend of yours, um, and tell them what's wrong with them because you can see it more clearly. But if you can step back from like the emotional bit and the personalization and how I've been harmed in this situation and just take a real honest look scientifically, uh, you might discover some things that you wouldn't because you're mired or embroiled in all the emotional uh, you know, trappings mm -hmm. that go along with your situation. Or there's even the notion of scientific prayer uh, that we talk about and I think Emmett Fox uh, goes into as well. Um, that if you try something scientifically, you, that is you, uh, through experimentation, you conduct uh, a certain uh, operation in the laboratory of your life. And if you get results, well, that's scientific, even if it is a prayer or a meditation or something you're doing that might be, you know, more towards the realm of, of religion or spirituality, but you can you even use a scientific way of looking at that. Well, maybe my, my chanting and, and dancing isn't really helping um, because I have a bad attitude about life. <laughs> maybe that needs to be worked on and you can look at yourself scientifically. Uh, so, but every, all these things have limits. They are lenses through which we can look at ourselves in the world. Each one maybe looks at things a little bit differently and if we can, you know, why, why choose? Why not use religion, science, philosophy, and the arts and psychology to try to solve this riddle? You know, or at least Absolutely. Yeah. find where to go. That's, that's, a, that's a great point. And I think that's where that idea of, of philosophy and, you know, Manley Hall's idea of bridging all those things, you know, in the original uh, name of the PRS, you know, philosophy, religion, and science, you know, of philosophical research society, they're both, you know, both synonymous with that, with that PRS, uh, you know, um, acronym that they used. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's trying to bridge all those things and, and say, hey, let's use, let's use all of these great tools 
uh, to, you know, to investigate the world. Um, but again, that's a, that is a, that's a different worldview than saying, okay, I've got to believe in either science or, or religion. Or I've got to believe in science or, you know, a mythological or earth religious based view of the world or, you know, something like this. It's like, you know, you're seeing those things, you know, as dichotomies. And in a sense, they are, you know, we have to be realistic. You know, they are, there are opposites, you know, and that's one of the beautiful things about Jung's work is he was adamant about being able to hold the opposites. Because, you know, this, this idea that, you know, that there's, um, you know, a, a thesis and antithesis and everything, you know, there's hot and there's cold, there, there, there are opposites, you know, and there are this tension between those two things. There is spirit and there is matter. Um, are they in opposition? You know, it depends. That's the answer. It depends. It could be, you know, it depends on where you place yourself in them. And he would talk about holding the, the place, holding the tension between the opposites. And that was the, the way to, to, to overcome them and then to be able to transcend them. You know, the Buddha talked about the middle path, you know, the middle path. And there's this idea in, in Kabbalah of the middle, the middle pillar between these two, two extremes, the, the, the two pillars uh, in, in Freemasonry. Uh, Boaz and Yaquin are the same idea. It's like the, the middle path is is where you go between the two extremes, between the black and the white. Taoism with yin and yang. Sure, the yin yang symbol, exactly. All of that. It's like what we're just talking about right now. I'll just interrupt. Yep, Inter yep. That's a myth. That is a mythological framework that these opposites are connected and they don't exist without each other. Um, and according to those traditions that we just listed. Uh, the goal is to bring those together, as well as Jung um, felt that. But that's a mythological construct. That's a framework. That's a story of looking at opposing forces instead of, well, one's good, the other one's evil. I want this one in my life, and I want to completely kill the other one off. You can't do that. That's not really what <laughs> opposing forces are. They don't exist without each other. Great point. Yeah, thank you. It's for a reason. You, it's the earth. Half of the earth is light, half of the earth is dark all the time. <laughs> yeah. Where you live, it, it may be spinning, and you know, it could be on the bright part or on the dark part, who knows? But if you step back far enough, half the planet's lit and half the planet's not at any given time. So we just we live in a cosmology <laughs> of opposing forces. Uh, because that's the way we're constructed. Our bodies have left and right hand sides. We have an inside and an outside. There's up and down. That's how we can orient anything. Yep. Uh, we couldn't live without these opposites. Figuring ground. How could you see a picture if you, if the background and the foreground were the same, uh, you know, color and value? It would be invisible. <laughs> it would be camouflage. Yeah. So we need these things. But you know, just to get back to this myth, that that is a myth. And I think what we have in this country, in the West, in uh, the United States, uh, I can speak for because this is where I live. Um, we have somehow bought into the notion that um, there's good and evil and the good is going to win and you just have to get rid of the evil. And what is the evil? Well, not me, <laughs> the other guy, uh, the other culture, the other person, the one who's wearing the other, you know, the red cap and not the blue cap. Um, you know, it gets broken down that, well, we're just going to defeat them. We're going to destroy them. It's like, no, you can't. It's they exist as opposites because of each other, not in spite of each other. 
That's a different mythological framework. It's a different construct uh, at looking at these things. Uh, and we're stuck in this dualism, this, this fight between light and dark, light and dark, uh, or whatever you want to call it, male and female, red and blue. Um, and there's no solution to it. The only solution is the harmony that the yin-yang, the tai chi symbol, you know, really demonstrates. Or like you talk about uh, Jung saying, holding these opposing things, like one in each hand. <laughs> Got the red on in this hand and the blue on that hand or the black and the white. And I'm holding them together. Mm-hmm. Not which one's right or which one's better, which one shouldn't do this, which one shouldn't do that. It's like, no, they're, they're together. Yeah. And so that's a myth. And when we lose these myths, uh, whether it's from Taoism or Buddhism or Kabbalah, uh, and lose touch with them, or the, the myth that nature gives us with night and day, and then you have the solstice uh, now in the winter when it's kind of cold and dark, and in the summer when it's warm and, and bright more often than it's dark, um, though that's a myth. That's a story. And we've even just lost touch with nature and what's really around us our whole cosmology um yeah yeah exactly and then before because of that i think some of this political infighting um could really benefit from a huge dose of Taoism. <laughs> yeah for sure yeah. sure i completely agree um you know and one of the things too like another uh you know some people have suggested that um that a new mythology that we might move towards is a is a is a mythology of uh, of of regeneration and sustainability for the earth. Uh, in other words, looking at the earth as a you know as a finite closed system that needs our our help and and um, and efforts in in preserving and and living with it in balance and looking at the natural order of ecosystems and operating within natural limits. Uh, you know, and not, and, and that, that's a new sort of a mythology. Some, you know, some people call that sustainability. Some people call it permaculture. You know, there's many, some people call it regenerative agriculture or conservation. There's many different names and approaches to it, but it's one of these things that, you know, that that's a sort of earth wide thing that's needed and that everyone can see, for example, uh, the idea that you know there's a scarcity, for example, of fish at the market, and you know why that is. The you know because the oceans are po- poisoned and with with chemicals, and and they're overfished. You know with with scientifically guided boats. You know the the problem with our technology is that it it allows us to to rape the resources of the earth. At, at you know such an astounding and alarming rate that we could literally use up all of its resources you know within a matter of you know years if it, if it were completely unchecked and we just you know ran amok you know the the combination of the the, the huge population the the massive um, growth of of economic wealth around the world and this you know coupled with, you know with this i you know this massive ability technological ability to excavate things and to blow things up and knock things down and cut through you know i mean they can cut through forests like like a you know a hot knife through butter now it's there's no there's no impediment to you know it used to be that you know our tools were limited you know we could saw a giant redwood down it would take you know i don't know how long it took but uh, you know these trees are giant you know and it's a massive undertaking to try to to harvest them 
um, you know, and things like that. But now with the tools that we have, you know, it's just, it's silly. And it's, you know, it's incredible. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a testament to our inventiveness and our, and our technological prowess, but it's scary. And without the containment of meaning and ethical constraint, we are a serious danger to ourselves and the planet. That's the reality. I mean, you talked about the atomic bomb earlier. That's one of those things. It's like we probably, you know, we probably should have really looked at that as a, as a race of individuals, a human race, and said, you know what, we're probably not spiritually and philosophically advanced enough for this technology. It's better left alone. Um, you know, but again, it was wartime conditions and, you know, I, I get it. The cons I get the, the fears and things that were going on and that the, you know, the enemy is developing this. I get all that. I understand. But the point is, is, you know, we've got to develop a system of, of ethical guidelines and, you know, that, that, that hold us together. And, you know, one of these, one of these things that's, it's a, pro it's a possibility if, if not even a probability is this idea of, you know, this, this sort of one earth spaceship earth idea, uh, you know, and, and us uniting as human beings on a, on a, you know, on a little spinning globe that's, that's, that's out in the middle of nowhere. You know what I mean? And now that we know that we've seen that image of the earth from space and so on, and we can use that image and kind of tie that into an ecological and, and sort of philosophical and ethical understanding of our place in the, on the earth you know, that's, that's one, one new sort of mythological outlook, that ecological outlook that can, you know, most people, even if they're going to argue about climate change and what, whether or not this or that is going on and how they feel about it, I think the average person walking down the street knows there's a problem and knows that we need to do something about it. They may not be in agreement what that is, but they can definitely think of a time like, for example, even the most conservative people have to notice that, um, that a, you know, uh, a small, you know, a fairly small fillet of salmon is now like, you know, $18. And when you were a kid, you could, you know, we, we could buy, we could get a whole salmon for practically nothing up in Seattle because they were plentiful. That's in my lifetime. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so, so these are things that you see are going on and you know they're happening. You can't argue about them. You see the rainforests are being chopped down. You see that you know, we're spreading at an alarming rate into all this, you know, all this um, wildlife land and so on. And we, we you know, we've got to, we've got to look at that. And I think that could be something that, you know, that we could think about as a sort of new paradigm, like how do we get along on a small planet in an ethical way and, you know, behave responsibly towards all living creatures, including the flora and fauna, right? That's well, yeah. You know, you you bring you know that term sustainability and permaculture. Um, up until a couple hundred years ago, that was just life. Yeah, exactly. You milked the cow to make the butter. When the cow died, you tanned the hide and made a leather jacket or chaps. And when you you raised the sheep, you would shear the wool. You would spin the yarn. You would make the sweater that you would wear when you go out to milk the cow. I mean, it was, you, you had to have everything. You had to have disposal. You used compost. But that's just how you lived, especially on the frontier, you know, when you're out in the, um, you know, in with nature. Uh, that was just the way of life. That mm -hmm. was the myth. That was the overriding 
set of instructions because that's how you got the job done. That's how you were able to live. It had to happen that way. We lost that. So this, this return, this resurrection of that myth, yes, it's going to come in and it's going to bring technology and it's going to bring a, uh, this kind of global village that we have that we didn't before. Um, it's not really going backwards, but it's bringing back through something that had been lost. And it was right then, and it's right, by right I mean correct, now. Uh, but when these things get re-mythologized, uh, like sustainability, uh, they will come with the new language and this time for the people who live now, because we've already lost it. We've already lost the old myth. Yeah. It's, it's in us somewhere, it's dormant. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're not gonna go back on the frontier and, and make our own stocks. Uh, some people can, but that's, you know, that's not practical for most people. Yeah. Um, and, and the irony, the, the tragedy really, is that at that time of the Industrial Revolution, when people were living in a sustainable way for the most part, um, when they started hacking down forests and pulling coal and oil out of the ground and polluting and all that, there, for a while, there was still, the earth could handle that. Mm -hmm. yeah, you're, this, you're cutting this down, yeah. but there's so much of it, and there's only so few people. That's flipped, but the problem is we're still operating under that paradigm. I think Not the sustainability yeah. one, but the fact that, oh, there's always more trees. There's always there's plenty more trees. of fish in the ocean. Uh, that's not really true, but we're operating that way. So that is really where the urgency is for this new myth. Um, because we're using the technology and tools um, of today with a story that isn't really true now. You're absolutely right about that. You hit you hit the nail on the head with that. It is it's an old mythological construct. It's the idea that there's you know you, you there's if this runs out, then we'll go get something else. If we run out of space, we'll just keep moving west. If you know we can take take more land if we need it. Those those myths now don't hold up, but we act as if there's always going to be more. There's always going to be more. Uh, instead of looking at, you know, the earth as, you know, having finite resources and infinite, you know, needs and desires placed upon them. So, you know, that's where we have to put ourselves in alignment with the, the, the way the earth naturally functions again and start looking at, you know, it, just like you said, going back to, you know, and it's not going in reverse. Obviously, we're not going to all go back and live on homesteads, and we're not all going to go live out in, you know, permaculture communes and stuff. It's not realistic. But we have to, you know, move towards a society that does things in a way that is uh, sustainable. And, and that it definitely involves a new type of, of mythological worldview. Like you said, we've been inundated with this idea of of really it's a consumerist ideal in a way that's what it's turned into it used to be the idea of you know infinite you know infinite natural natural resources because the united states had abundant natural resources it had massive forests that that these people had never seen the likes of you know massive amounts of game and fish and you know it looked like there was an endless supply for everyone all the time but once technology began to to harvest things, 
and you know and the human element was removed and you began to do things with you know massive amounts of horsepower because of petroleum it changed the whole paradigm and you know we still think well there's you know we're just one scientific idea or you know or revolution or new technological advancement away from fixing this well if you know if food runs out you know science will figure something out we'll just you know we'll we'll eat protein pellets that they manufacture in you know in 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 you know it's it's there's always this mythological idea that science will figure out some you know some way of of solving the problem. And that's another mythology that we believe in. And this is why I say, you know, there's a, there's a death of myth in a sense, but then, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So new mythology, you know, moves in. That new mythology is, you know, the, the, you know, the Marxist ideal or the utopian society or, you know, or, or, you know, free market capitalism or, you know, liberal, you know, neoliberal, you know, democratic institutions or whatever you believe in, those become your mythologies and your religions, you know, and, and, or, you know what I'm saying? And so it's, it's, you know, it's not, it's less of a, in a, in a weird way, it's less of a death of myth as a sort of death of traditional myth. And the thing is, is these traditional myths, to get back to that idea, um, and, you know, they, they, they really do explain the human experience, they, you know, and they do stand the test of time. I mean, some of these myths, you know, these Babylonian myths and these Egyptian mythologies and even uh, the mythology that's contained in Christianity and Judaism, uh, the stories and, and you know, uh, and, you know, and any, you know, the historical accounts as well uh, that, that explain things are, you know, told in mythological ways in addition. You know, I'm not saying that everything is divorced from history, but but those 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 things have stood the test of time, and they talk about the human condition. They talk about the journey of the soul. They talk about ethics and what it's, you know, what it means to be an ethical human being. You know, the stories that Buddha told, and you know, the images in in his different you know mythological stories and so on. All these are guiding us to to show us you know how to live. You know, some of them we need to update and modify, and some of them we need to interpret in a, in a new way, you know, with the new findings we have in science and so on. And, you know, we have to open up this mythology in a different different light now and, and so on. But it's all, it's all still valid. And that's why there's this resurrection of meaning in some ways can be, you know, like a resurrection of the old ways, the old systems, the old traditions. But, um you know, in a new, in a new way, you know, so, and that's where, that was one of the things, again, get to get back to Jung, he would talk about, it's like, you know, he would talk, he would always ask clients, um, you know, patients of, if they had any kind of, you know, religious beliefs, or if they had any sort of religious upbringing, and he would delve into that, you know, and, and oftentimes recommend that they go back and kind of investigate those beliefs, because even if you don't practice those religious beliefs, and even if you, you know, you know, find them abhorrent for some reason, there's going to be value in looking at, at them and trying to study them and maybe understand them in a new way. Because obviously, if you're really, you know, uh, incensed by these ideas, they've made a profound impact on you. And one of the things I found, we've talked about this before, not so much on the show, but one of the things I found is many people who are very hardline vocal atheists, grew up in evangelical Christian households. 
or with a, you know, father that was a pastor, uh, you know, or in some kind of situation that made them really averse to Christianity. I found that oftentimes many atheists, not all, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to generalize, but the people that I've spoken to oftentimes have had a very bad experience with Christianity. You know what I mean? And so in, in some ways, even an atheist would, would, I think, you know, find some value in going back and looking at Christianity in a sense of in, in trying to investigate what pushes your buttons about it so much. Is it the structure? Is it the dogma? Is it the history of like the Catholic Church and its, you know, bloody persecutions of people? Is it, you know, is it the mythological structure and the stories itself? I mean, what is it about that that's pushing your buttons? Because there's going to be some shadow material there that's going to help you psychologically. And you might discover something about yourself. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, and that would be true with, with any kind of movie, anything. Yeah. Um, is, is to actually go deeply into it and find out what's behind it because it, it is easy in some way, uh, certainly natural, uh, to want to reject something that has hurt you and move in the opposite direction and do everything you can to subvert or criticize <laughs> or tear down um you know the wounding uh, institution uh, in the first place um but yeah sure i mean i would say all the religions um maybe to a lesser degree some of the eastern ones um but you know even hinduism but you could certainly say um christianity and i you know i would say judaism and, and islam as well um have suffered from the institutionalization of what was originally a mystic or you know mythic actually um tradition uh, if you absolutely power structure of the church or the priesthood with the um the hebrews of the near east or you know you have the different factions now uh, of islam you know fighting each other killing each other just like the catholics and the protestants i mean yep. you, you have this, this this infighting even within these uh, traditions so there's a lot to not like about them but the institution, or say Christianity Incorporated, if you want to, you know, put a label on it, is not really <laughs> the Christianity of Jesus, if, if you want to um, go all the way back. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, a lot of these things have been perverted, subverted, and, and, and to some degree science as as well, because science is conducted by human beings. It's a human thing. So whether it's a government, you know, a scientific uh, structure, or a religious tradition, they can all become distorted and oppressive, uh, even though they set out <laughs> trying to help. Maybe they were birthed in a response to something that was terrible, and this seemed to be the better way. Uh, that's just a human being thing that we're prone to that, susceptible to that. But I think these things can save themselves. Science can save itself if it goes back to scientific skepticism instead of scientific dogmatism and this, you know, we have these saints uh, in science, uh, practically, it's like, wait a minute, you still got to have that skeptical, let's see, <laughs> let's just see. The science is not settled. If a scientist says the science is settled, they're not really a scientist, or they're not really using the you know, original foundational tradition of science, and that is that our knowledge is constantly changing, uh, we know more and more, and the more we know, a lot of times the more we discover that we don't know. Uh, so 
and, and religion too, if they can go deeply back into maybe the origin and the simple um, universal truths that are comforting, are instructive, uh, are uh, unifying, uh, go back to those. And, and don't worry about you know all this other stuff, the structure of this or the government this or the caliphate or the priest or the, you know, that's something else. That's not the real, you know, thread, the, the real core, the essence of these religious governments. You're talking about socialism and communism. You know, there's, there's some really good stuff in there if you go all the way back, yeah. but then you put a uniform and you fight a war and you kill these people because you're trying to save them. Uh, yeah, you're really missing the, missing the point. Sure, sure, absolutely. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. Um, you know, and so, you know, I think, I think you're right. The institutionalization of stuff can oftentimes kill the, the, the mystery and the, and the mythology behind it. Right. And the good things that are in it, you know, because it becomes static and dogmatic and, and even dangerous and oppressive. But if you look for the, you know, the mystical and mythical behind, uh, behind these ideas, uh, whether they're, you know, religious or, or social or political ideas and you know kind of look at the the real ethical and philosophical underpinnings of them you know you can find things of, of great value and so it's like this is where I think this idea of resurrection of meaning comes in it's like in some ways you know you know if you haven't again if you haven't had any kind of religious background or any kind of you know philosophical or kind of spiritual background you know, you're just going to have to experiment and read and explore different things uh, to see. But if you if you were brought up in a tradition or at least around one or it's in your lineage or something in some way or another, there may be a way for you to get into that that kind of thing that's sort of archetypally sort of pre-wired into you in a sense because it it is in your cultural DNA, let's call it, and find a a sort of a mystical path into it that doesn't get so caught up in the the dogmatic and the and the oppressive elements of it but more of the free spirit so for example like if you know if you were studying christianity you know study the mystics you know meister eckhart and you might you know you might study um teresa of avila and you know and and some of these these great saints and so on saint francis and you know and look at these people that embodied the real spirit of mystical christianity you study some of the rosicrucian work and even the new thought stuff is really based in those ideas um you know in those mystical and mythical ideas so you know there may be a way into your into your tradition uh that that gives you uh you know a sort of resurrection of meaning or you may need something completely new. And that's where we talked about a little bit about the idea of this kind of spaceship earth idea, this idea of one earth, um, sustainability as a sort of philosophical and ethical way of living in the world, um, looking at those kinds of ideas. Um, you know, other ideas that, you know, you might do to find some resurrection of meaning and to find meaning and orientation in your life. Study Jung's work, you know, and you know, a, good, a good entry point is Robert Johnson's work, um, you know, because what, what's there is this archetypal way of looking at religions where you, you, you can find the, the core sort of universal qualities 
that are in religion that you might be able to apply to your own life and still look at, you know, different traditions like Buddhism and Hinduism and, you know, Islam and, you know, Native American tradition, shamanism, whatever, you begin to see the building blocks and these sort of archetypal elements and you can construct something that works for you if you understand the framework behind it. Uh, so that can be, a, that can be a way in. That can be a way in. You know, looking at the natural world, you spoke about the natural world a little bit and just kind of getting in touch with the cycles of nature again, you know, looking at astronomy, astrology, looking at the planets, the stars, the changes of season, the solstices and equinoxes, um, you know, and that might lead you to a more earth religion based kind of understanding of life or more shamanistic or, you know, kind of, um, you know, a, a more traditional a uh, way of a way of looking at life that's also valid and then figuring out a way you you know you can also live in this postmodern technological world we live in bridging those two things for yourself you know it's going to be and this is the process of individuation that Jung talks about it's a, it's now an individual it's an individual kind of a task now and that's the challenge for us you know before we were contained within a church or a synagogue or a mosque or uh, you know some sort of group work and most of us today are not you know, thankfully, some of us still have those moorings, but most of us don't. So what do we do? You know, and that's where this this task is now incumbent upon us to to find our own path. But there are teachers and there are guidelines and there are traditions that help us to do this, like I said. Uh, so so those are some ideas. Do you have any ideas to to help people find that sort of resurrection of meaning in their own lives? Well, it's a it's a rebirth and it's it's a new birth. Um, it's a very old soul <laughs> that's getting rebirthed, um, this meaning that goes all the way back, probably to our origins, or if there's such thing as pre-origin, I would probably go there too, um, that it needs to be brought back up, it, invite it in, ask for it to appear. Um, how can it show up in a new way? We live in a, now we're all separated with this pandemic thing that, you know, people are doing on the computer, you know, we're doing a Zoom call right now. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, but that was, we were doing that beforehand. Um, but now people are actually going to school that way and going to work that way and mm -hmm. uh, trying to find new ways, you know, this separated and then technology is sort of keeping us together, but also separating us at the same time. I uh, like what you're saying about group work. The, um, the danger now is that we used to rely um, Yes, on these churches or organizations, uh, when we were maybe more small town, more rural, um, as as a as a planet, <laughs> most people, or before then it was more tribal. Uh, so you relied on the strength of the tribe, the wisdom of the tribal elders, uh, because elders were respected. That's a myth that I think <laughs> we've pretty much lost in the West, um, and uh, it has now and and that sustained us because there was good guidance because it was mythologically correct if, if you want to uh use that term now we've become separate and the danger is that if we look to these institutions as the myth makers and the policy makers and the leaders uh, they're not equipped to do that especially left to their own devices there's this sense of taking it back so the myth even though these myths are completely universal, uh, they are deeply, deeply personal, and they may affect us 
and play out in our lives in different ways, even though we're all part of the same myth, like the ocean you know, is the same substance of the water, yet each wave, each swell uh, behaves in its own way and has its own size and shape and movement, uh, all seemingly very different expression of this one ocean. So if we can get that, uh, get that going, I think that helps. I feel connected to something, even if I feel separated and you know, maybe lost on my own, um, you know, or that I'm in a world that's devoid of meaning and a government and a culture and these, you know, pop images that are uh, just not the food. <laughs> I mean, literally the food doesn't have the nutritional value that it needs to sustain life. Uh, the same is true with the, you know, these cultural uh, nutritional requirements that we're not getting. We have to look within and I think we have to take uh, control of ourselves, like self-initiate, remythologize ourselves. You know, Gene Houston said it uh, best when he goes, don't pathologize, mythologize. Find your myth. Find the movie that touches you in some way that's just beyond, oh, it was a good movie, or there was nice action or special effects, that something scratched in it, in your soul that, that needed to be contacted. Um, books, uh, art, anything like that, a good piece of music or rock and band that just gets you on some deeper level. And you know the difference. I think everybody does. Mm -hmm. They know what's, you know, kind of plastic and, um, you know, devoid of, of, of meat or nutrition. Um, and we also know what fills our soul, what helps us, um, you know, connect with things, so look there, look look the things in your own life um, and grow those, hold on to those. See, these are important, it's not just a movie. Maybe it's not just a movie. Maybe that movie you saw, whether it's Star Wars or uh, Top Gun or who knows, and, and it touched you in some way, there's something in it for you. You have that, you're connected with that archetype. And even though maybe, okay, you're not Tom Cruise and you're not gonna fly an F-14 off a aircraft carrier, but You've got that maverick in you, and you can learn lessons on how to live your life by the example of even a movie character, even in some action movies like that. There's, there, you can find meaning in these things, but you have to find your own meaning. And I think if we can find that in ourselves, then the people we vote for, the companies we buy from, um, the things that we do and the way we live our life uh, can change, and that will spread out um, to the world. So I'm a firm believer in kind of an in-out approach, kind of a personal towards um, the collective, but tap into that universal archetypal energy uh, that some, and you know, I know everybody knows something that affects them in a good way, but in a way that the rest of the world doesn't provide. But maybe this character in the story does, and there you'll find your myth. There you go. Great point. You know, follow those, follow those little threads. I mean, Robert Johnson called those slender threads. Those little things that move you, that kind of pull you forward, that that you know, give you give you clues to to find the meaning. And you know, look, you know, ask for that guidance from the unconscious. You know, from from the spirit. You know, within yourself, and you know, the spirit that you know that guides the universe and so on. And, and watch your dreams and watch, you know, watch, like, like Chris pointed out, things that move you, things that 
uh, you're passionate about, you know, look at your own history and, you know, some of the traditions or cultures or, you know, ethnic groups or whatever that, you know, you're, you're, you belong to, uh, that maybe you've never really followed up on or looked into. Sometimes the, the mythology of those groups, the stories and folklore of those groups will move you. You know, if you're somebody who doesn't know about your roots, maybe do one of those ancestry things and see where your family came from if you don't know any of the stories and then trace it back. And, you know, if you're Italian, for example, maybe the, you know, the folklore of, of Italy and then Roman mythology will really strike a chord with you and you never really realize that. Maybe there's something in you that, you know, is there that's waiting to be woken up. So, you know, experiment, look at who you are you know, see what moves you, watch your dreams, ask for the guidance that you need, you know, spirits and, you know, and, and angels or whatever you want to call them will, will come to your aid, um, you know, to help you, to help guide you. Uh, so, so that's, that's something, something that's there and available for you. Uh, so that's, I think, going to do it for us today. Thank you for that great, uh, that great advice and, 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 and contribution to this show today, Chris. I appreciate it. All right. All right, so we are going to be uh, back next Friday with another Fox show. Thank you again for joining us. We appreciate it. We're at anchor.fm slash Cosmic Eye. If you'd like to make a donation, CosmicEye.org. There's more information about us there. Chris's book is The Spirit in the Sky. Mine is If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate. Uh, have a great week. Take care of yourselves out there. We, uh, we appreciate you guys showing up. Uh, goodbye. God bless. <laughs>